teach this better than I could. <laughs> it's not that I don't enjoy it. It's just I have not um, personally taught this part of Daniel before. I've taught, like most of you know, the, the stories and those types of things. But this takes us a step further. And so um, what I'm going to do today, because of time, is we're going to spend time talking about the prophecies in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. And I have to do that because if I don't do it, we will never get done. I'm not going to be able to spend a lot of time talking about Daniel personally or his relationship with God. But fortunately, the questions that you're going to be discussing talk about his prayer life and how he and God related. And so what we want to do today is just to kind of set the scene for what is going on here and then just look at the prophecies and how they pertain to us because we can't just dismiss them. We can't just say that's just a bunch of silly symbols and signs that we can't understand. It's in the Word of God, and all of the Word of God is profitable for teaching and instruction in righteousness. This is too. Though it's hard to understand, and if you uh, want to spend some additional time digging, you'll learn a whole lot. But God has something important for us to say, and we need to pay attention to it. So um, the scene here, of course, is that Daniel is in captivity in Babylon. His present day and time is not what he would have planned. He's away from home, away from everyone and everything that he knew. But God is with him. And the strength of Daniel is in the fact that he knows God. And God, does it, to him, it doesn't matter what his circumstances are or where he lives. Daniel gives his whole heart and his circumstances over to God. Wherever he is, God is there. Whatever he's doing, God is in it. And he lives his life that way. It's a challenge, and it's something that we need to take a look at. But what Nebuchadnezzar calls upon him to do is an impossible thing. He's one of the, the um, wise men in Babylon, and all of the wise men were called to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream, not only to interpret it, but to tell him what he had dreamed. The court astrologers and magicians could not do anything. In fact, they told him it was impossible. And it was impossible for Daniel, too, except that Daniel went to God. And God told him the dream. He told him Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Not only that, he gave him the interpretation of it. And not only that, he wrote it down so that we have it here. God inspired the writing of it so that we're going to look at what centuries ago happened in the palace in Babylon. So that's really where we start. Now, I'm not going to go into the preliminaries of, of, of all of the chapter, but I want you to start with me with the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. Daniel goes before Nebuchadnezzar and he tells him, God of heaven has told me what you have dreamed. <clears throat> so in Daniel chapter 2, we read that dream about this large statue. Um, I printed these sheets out for you and we'll be using those and actually working our way through them so that we have a little better understanding of this. 
but he talks about the dream and then gives the interpretation of it. And we'll do that in chapter two and we'll do it in chapter seven. Now, what I want you to know here is that what we are reading was for Nebuchadnezzar future. It gave a history, I want to say a history of the future of the nations um, from Babylon's day through the Roman Empire, through the time that Jesus was born. And so all of this was new to Nebuchadnezzar, was new to Daniel. It was news, really. This is the dream on, in uh, chapter 2, verse 31. Daniel says to him, well, let me read this before, because 29 tells us a little background. As you were lying there in your bed, O king, he says, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. Nebuchadnezzar, this is your future. As for me, the mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than any other living man, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation and that you might understand what went through your mind. So here we are. Verse 31. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. Now, our little bit of artwork barely shows any of that, but I want you to imagine the grandeur of Babylon, wealthiest city called the city of gold, because everything, the palaces, the, the governmental buildings, were covered in gold. It was an extremely wealthy and civilized nation. Okay, so an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold. Its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, and its legs of iron. Its feet, partly of iron and partly of baked clay. Now I have some lines next to your picture there. If you want to just jot down, the description that we've just read, the head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet and toes of iron and clay. All of this has significance because what Daniel is doing, you'll see later, is laying out really before him all of the strengths of the nations that are to come after Nebuchadnezzar. Babylon stands as the supreme head of it. Nebuchadnezzar himself is called the king of kings in that time. He was powerful. The head of, or the chest of, chest and arms of bronze is actually a takedown from the head of gold because silver is not as valuable as gold. Now the, the, um, each one of those things is a symbol for a nation and Basically, in the center of that drawing is a description or a name. The head of gold stands for Babylon and the king of uh, Babylon. The chest in the arms talks about the kingdom of Medo-Persia, and it was huge, and it came after Babylon. Now, that would be in your world history. If you ever studied world history when you were in sixth grade, that's when it starts. So <laughs> the Medo-Persian Empire was gigantic, but it was not as grand as Babylon. 
It was a different kind. And every succeeding uh, nation took something of the nation before it. So within uh, the Medo-Persian Empire was parts of the good things of Babylon. And Babylon had many good things. They had a code of laws. They had an alphabet. They had things that we even use today. There are calendars and things like that that were brought down into the next generation. So we start out with Babylon. The silver chest and arms stand for Medo-Persia. And again, a diminishing of value. The belly and thighs are uh, bronze, and that's a simple symbol for the nation of Greece and Grecian uh, prosperity. Greece thrived, the nation, under Philip of Macedon and Alexander the Great, and they conquered lands that went all of the way over to India. These were powerful nations, but next to Babylon, they had lesser value within the eyes of the world. They were different, but they were real. So we have Babylon, we have the Medes and the Persians, and these are true nations, things that we can study. And then we had Greece. The armor of bronze was the sign of their kingdom. And so the, he mentions that, that bronze is the, is the uh, metal that they are recognized by. So the next nation we come to is the nation of Rome, legs of iron. Now, um, I want to talk to you a little bit about this because this is really important. Rome was a huge nation, and you're going to read in here about the viciousness with, with which the conquerors took their, their captive, captive, uh, captives and brought people into captivity. Rome was a large nation, not as large as the, some of the other ones, but powerful, crazy powerful, cruel. And we'll read in here about how they crushed their enemies. On the back of this um, paper is a map of the old Roman Empire. This is important because we're going to learn something about it that will have an effect on us. All right? This is the Roman Empire, all of this that you see in the bronze color. This is the Mediterranean Sea. But you see that Rome went way down all the way into Africa, took in um, what would have been Jerusalem and the Holy Land. And remember, uh, Rome, Caesar Augustus, gave the order that all the world should be taxed. And, and they were world conquerors. Even though that's as much of the world as they conquered, they were powerful. They went up into what would be um, some of Russia, all the way up um, into England, and what is now Spain, Portugal, all of those were under the authority of the Roman Empire. Okay, a big uh, amount of, of wealth and prosperity. But, um, Rome is known by its, they call it the legs of iron. Different from uh, gold, different from silver, different from bronze, but strong. The iron could hold up anything and they were known for their iron heel with which they crushed the nations. Strong warriors, uh, decisive conquerors really. And so what Daniel is telling him about is, this is what's going to happen after you, O king, okay? All of these nations. So let's go back. Let's go back to um, 
33, verse 33. It's legs of iron, and there were two parts to the Roman nation, the eastern and the western. So it was a divided nation. And then there's more. Its legs were of iron, its feet were partly of iron and partly of baked clay. So you go down and there's another division. There's not only two legs of iron, but there's feet and toes, which are important and we're gonna be talking about them. And the partly of iron and partly of clay has to do with the weakening of the kingdom, okay? It won't hold together. And the Bible tells us that. It says its legs were of iron, its feet partly of, clay, of iron, partly of baked clay. <clears throat> While you were watching, this is important, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay, and it smashed them. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces, and at the same time, and became like chaff on the, on the threshing floor in the summertime. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. So nothing left, really, of that Roman emperor, empire that was so powerful, okay? But all of that we're gonna see is future. The, um, then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on the threshing floor. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. So the king had a nightmare. <laughs> and this needed interpretation. But what I want you to see here is that what Daniel at first lays out before, before Nebuchadnezzar is an outline of what is going to happen in the future to him. We look back at it, it's our world history. <clears throat> it actually happened. If you pick up a history book, you'll find out the course of the nations follows exactly what is here. Okay? Now, let's look at the interpretation. Any, any questions or comments before we go on? This is fast. <laughs> okay, the interpretation. Daniel says, this was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given the God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. The God of heaven has done that. God is in charge of all of this. In your hands, he's placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, wherever they live. He has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold over his world, over his kingdom, potentially, God gave him authority to conquer, okay? You are that king. The second and third empires are given next. After you, Nebuchadnezzar, another kingdom will arise. That would be the Medo-Persia. And next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. And then there's the fourth one. <clears throat> Starting in verse 40, um, starting in verse 40, it says, finally, there'll be a fourth kingdom. After all of these years, there will be a fourth kingdom. 
strong as iron, which would be which kingdom then? Rome. The kingdom of Rome. For iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Again, a powerful and cruel nation. Educated, yes, drawing on all of the wealth and knowledge of the nations before it, but at the same time bent on conquering. <clears throat> okay? It will crush and break all of the others. It will be a great nation. And just as you saw that the feet and the toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. So here we go to the toes and the feet. Again, the strong legs would be the eastern and the western uh, parts of Rome, would have been Constantinople in Turkey on the eastern side, and Rome was the capital on the west. But then they keep going down to the feet and the toes, which are nations that are described as being partly of clay and partly of iron. So you know that, what, what about them? The Bible tells us there, what partly of clay and partly of iron would make your feet and the legs of the statue what? Kind of fragile, okay? Able to be toppled. So it says um, partly of clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom again. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, as you saw iron mixed with clay. And listen to this. This is an important verse to note. Verse 42. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom, the divided kingdom, this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. A kingdom coming after the huge, powerful kingdom of Rome. Partly clay, partly iron, brittle, but still partly of the Roman Empire. When, when um, the Roman emperors went through and conquered, and they conquered these lands um, on the map I showed you, and went into all of these nations up into what we know as modern Europe, the nation itself got so big that it could not be controlled. In Rome, the emperor sat, or in Constantinople, the emperor over there, and all around them were these other nations that they had conquered but could not control, and there, were, there was infighting among them, the, the Germans, the Poles, Britain, and you read about the Goths and the Visigoths and the Vikings and the Germanic tribes, and Rome couldn't control it, but it's still part of the Roman Empire. But what God is saying to us here, and we're gonna get into this because this is part of the toes and horns that I have written down. Out of that nation will come this nation that is composed of partly iron and partly clay, an admixture of peoples, smaller nations, the toes of the nations. Right now, that hasn't happened, but we're going to see, and we'll talk about this in Daniel 7, how these nations eventually of the, that are comprised here of the toes and the feet of the Roman Empire will one day join together and become 
a federation of nations that we will see working in the end times. Okay, that's what Romans or what uh, Daniel 7 talks to us about. So keep this in mind. These nations were at once part of the Roman Empire. Many of them are still there. You know of Spain, you know of Greece, you know of German, Germany, you know of the nations that we know in our modern time. They're still there. So what we see is, <clears throat> so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united. And this was true in the Roman, the old Roman Empire, any more, any more than iron mixes with clay. At the time that this was written, those nations were not stable. <clears throat> but one day, some of them will be drawn together and God will put them to use, okay? Does that make sense? Okay. Now, the next part of this, and what I've done on um, number five on your, on your feet and toes, what I would put next to that is the joining together of those nations is actually going to be future. The old Roman Empire with all made up of all of these parts disappeared in about 40, 470 AD. The Roman Empire was in effect when Jesus came. It lasted after that, but it is no more. But these nations still exist, okay? Then we go down to verse 44. So number five, the nation that will come of that, number five is, is future, you just put a future. And verse 44, in the time of those kings, and this is talking about the kings of number five, that the, the kings made up of those mixture of nations, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. In that old Roman Empire, God will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. So out of that conglomeration of nations, and during that time, in the time of the kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will be left that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. We're talking about what? That rock that's cut out of the mountain, out of, out of the mountain, will grow and will crush all of the world powers, the time of the end. And that is what this is looking at. So toes and horns, a world ruler at a time to come, we're going to talk about that from Daniel 7, but that is also future. Put that down on the second half. What you see here is what is called the striking stone. And let's go back to chapter 2 up at the very first description. This is the striking stone. This is a picture of the, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of time. After the world is disintegrated and battles have been won and wars have been fought. And Jesus will come. 
Um, what we have here, starting in verse 33 of chapter 2, it's legs of iron, it's feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. And while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. God is at work here. It struck the statue on the feet of iron and clay, and it smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on the threshing floor of summer. There will be a time when all of the world's nations will be crushed at the end times. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. And that is talking about the kingdom of heaven. So what I did on my paper is I took from number five and I drove a line down to the striking stone and put future, the future destruction of all of the nations, including the nation that erupts and comes up from the clay and the brittle and the mixture of peoples, okay? Sounds kind of like a big thing, doesn't it? Now, we're going to go over to Daniel 7, because Daniel 7 gives us information on this that's not here. And this is confusing, so if I totally confused you, I'm sorry. <laughs> so over in Daniel 7, again, this is Daniel's dream. This is not Nebuchadnezzar's dream. This is Daniel's dream. in chapter 7 verses 1 through 8 a vision and in his vision I'm going to start with verse 4 he saw um, great beasts coming up out of, out of the sea Okay, four of them each different from the others in verse 4 it says the first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so it stood on its feet like a man and the heart of a man was given to it. And there was before me a second beast that looked like a bear. And then down to verse 6, after that I looked and there was another beast that looked like a leopard. Now why do you suppose God gave Daniel visions of beasts? Because what we're going to see is that each one of these Beasts in his dream correspond to the nations that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his. Why would God use beasts to picture those nations? What do you know about beasts? Strong. They're strong, they remain beasts. <laughs> they are, they are beasts. They are animalistic, we cannot tame them. And that is really what God is saying. The nations themselves are under their own control. We can't train them. God, God knows exactly where they are, and he allows what they do. But these nations are like animals, like a lion, like a, a bear, a, a ferocious, brute beasts, basically, is what he's saying. 
Um, and the fourth beast, he just says, it's a beast. The fourth animal that he sees in, in verse seven. Look at this. After that, in my vision at night, I looked and there, be there before me was a fourth beast. Terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. This is the same language he uses when we describe the nation of Rome in chapter 2. It had large teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the beasts, and it had ten horns. So down below, I have ten horns, toes and horns, a world ruler, and a time to come. Because here's what we see. As you read through this, you learned some things about the beast in, in um, Daniel chapter 7. And I know that your lesson asked for some of those things. What did you learn about the beast from your lesson? What did it talk to you about? I think it's on page 27. There are some questions. Or maybe question 27, page somewhere in there. What did you learn about the beast? We're going to read about it. I just want to see if you remember anything that stood out. I think you'll find it on page 27, uh, probably question 24. Yeah. This is the only beast that he goes into um, a description of. So what, what does he say about it? The fourth beast is the fourth kingdom. It represents the kingdom of Rome, just like the one with the feet of iron and, and the legs of iron. It had ten horns and another little horn came up from it. We'll be reading this in a minute. What else did you find out? A mouth speaking great things. A mouth speaking great things. And if you go on, you find out that that mouth had a, a blasphemous attitude toward the Lord God. More than anything, he hated God and spoke against him. It was the only beast that is said to have done that. I'll take you through, through some of the questions here. Um, this beast, and let's go to verse 8 in, in chapter 7. While I was thinking about the horns, there was before me another horn, a little one, which came up among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Now, you have to skip all of the way over to verse 15 and get another description of the beast. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and I asked the true meaning of all this from one who stood by him. He told me this interpretation. Verse 17, the four beasts are four kingdoms that will arise from the earth, and the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. 
And then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest. This is a beast that could hardly be described, okay? It's actually um, described for us in, in Revelation chapter 13. But here's what it said. I want to know that why it was different. It had iron teeth and bronze claws. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. And I wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and the other horn that came up, before which three of them fell. The horn that looked more imposing than the others and that, that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn, this little horn, was waging war against the saints and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. Verse 23, this is a description again of the beast. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. It will be a beast that is more powerful than any we have ever imagined. And then another king will arise. Different from the earlier ones, he will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High. He will oppress his saints and try to change the times and the laws. And the saints will be handed over to him, to the beast, for a time, times, and half a time. Have you heard that expression before? Mm -hmm. It speaks of the end of times, and specifically, one half of the seven-year period of tribulation. So at the midpoint, this beast will be given reign, free reign over the people of the earth. And he will do horrendous things, manipulative things, uh, things that we cannot imagine. And that's why it's written in language like this. But I want to talk to you about this beast particularly because there is a relationship between the toes and the horns. Johnny. Is that the Antichrist? That is the Antichrist. Okay. He is going to establish his kingdom and he is going to rise up at the midpoint and God begins to turn power over to him. This is all under the control and authority of God. Okay? Now, we don't have a lot of time left, but I want to just give you this. The relationship, let's look at toes and horns, all right? This last beast had 10 horns. Out of the 10, one comes up, subdues the others, and becomes ruler. Sets himself up to be a ruler, a world ruler. The 10 toes are a description of that nation that will eventually come from the nations left from the old Roman Empire. Remember I showed you the map. So from somewhere in that nation are countries that will somehow band together. Hasn't happened yet. That's future in God's timetable. Watch the news. Jesus says be on the alert. So the ten toes and the ten horns are basically talking about the same thing. The horns and toes. 
horns and posts. You can remember that. And out of the horn rises single horn, conquers three kings and sets himself up to rule. The others don't have power against him. Remember, he's working with nations that were not together, but he will build a federation of nations through which he can work. Okay? Now, some people have said this is the European common market. Some have said it's NATO. Don't pay any attention to what that is. God has this in mind, and he's got a perfect plan here, but there will be 10 nations, and out of them will come a ruler, one that will rule. 10 horns, 10 toes, a ruler to come. And that's why at the bottom of the Roman statue, I have feet and toes, verse 742, a description of the kingdom, which is on chapter 7. It must be 2. It's supposed to be 242. 242 says... This is the one, so this will be a divided kingdom, yet we'll have some of the strength of iron, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. Verse 42, and the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle, and these nations will join together. That's future. The horns are future, and out of them then will arise an antichrist. So, if we go down and look under the relationship between the toes and the horns, they are the same, and out of those nations will arise a ruler that will come. Now, I'm going to have you turn because of time. I have down there two things. The fourth kingdom is Rome, gives way to these nations underneath it, the, the toes and, and the feet. And over here on Daniel 7, we have a kingdom of another ruler, 10 horns, the little horn. And so in Revelation 13, turn over to that. The beast, all of this is future. The beast was given, this is 13.5, the beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. He was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nations. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All those names whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. If any, and then he who has an ear to hear, <laughs> let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. It will be a time that we do not want to live through. 
And the Bible is silent about, not totally silent, but doesn't give us an absolute picture of when we will be taken up and, and caught up to be with the Lord, okay? But we do know this from these things we're reading. At the midpoint of that period of time, this beast will be in power. And it will be a time of testing and trial for Israel primarily and for those who are left on the earth in general. Yes? It says 42 months, so that I wonder if there's a correlation between like presidential term, which is, isn't that usually four years? <laughs> yeah, I don't think there is. Oh, you don't think there is? Okay. No. I just thought, I was like, oh, I wonder if that's Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. Um, I, I, a lot of things that go on in the United States look like things that will happen, but the United States really, at this point, isn't, isn't mentioned in this. <clears throat> However, the entire world will be, will be involved, except for those that the Lord takes with him, takes to heaven. And there will be a point, um, you know, our church basically, I think, believes in the pre-millennial pre so that the, the saints are in heaven with the Lord during some of this. But we don't really know. The Bible is very silent about it specifically. What God does say to us is he wants us to live <clears throat> as though he is among us all of the time, in the worst of times. Now, the good news is this. The final thing I have on there is that striking stone and the final kingdom of Christ. And I want to just end with this so that um, we can get on to the questions. Um, I want you to, I want to end with, I'm going to read from verse 15 um, to the end of chapter 7. Wait, not 15. Let me just read from 25 to the end of that chapter, 25 to 27. You're back to Daniel 2. Daniel 7. seven. Sorry. Daniel 7. Daniel 2 talks specifically about the striking stone. Okay? But I want to take this over here to the end. 25. This is the Antichrist. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints, try to set the the times and change the laws, and the saints will be handed over to him. And this is specifically talking about Israel handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will set, will sit, and this is this is the king of heaven. The court will sit, and his power, the power of the beast, will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the power, and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. That's us. And his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all of the rulers will worship and obey him. In the end, Jesus wins. In the wind, in the end, God is on the throne, and we are with him. Now, I want to take you back to chapter 2, where we read about the striking stone, because this is Jesus. I want to take you to 2, I'm going to take you to 2.44. <clears throat> In the time of those kings, at the end times, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. 
This is the Lord's kingdom. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, and the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is what? Trustworthy. Now, this has been a too rapid going over of very serious things. And I'm sure your minds are going, what in the world was she even talking about? <laughs> but you can go back, and if you take some time, you can follow the references on that paper and see how God has all of this planned, and he is in control. Okay? So I'm going to let Bethany go ahead and take you through the, so the other part. Yes? So then your question here, why are these verses extremely important? Is it because if we know that God is in control, you know, he's allowing this to happen, but he's still in control. Absolutely. The question at the end is to make you think, and it's to make you think about the power of God over all of this evil that we see and have talked about. God is in control, and he is allowing it. Well, so there's a parallel between um, Nebuchadnezzar um, overcoming the Jew, or the Judah, and, and then the, the ruler at the end times having that 42 months, right? I mean, because God allowed both of them. God allowed both of them. God allowed the overthrow of Israel under, under Nebuchadnezzar. He's allowed, uh, just even in World War II, the Germans to take the Jews and put them into concentration camps. All of this, and the things that go on within the, with the, upon the earth, God knows about and allows. This end time will be extremely difficult. And the warning is that we, we need to be ready. Now, there's more to this that we'll get to later on in the other chapters. So leave it hanging here. And Michelle's got the next lesson. <laughs> <laughs>